Hi guys, welcome to Barbarossa, Apocalypse in the East, where we cover the German invasion of the USSR. I know I promised you guys the first main episode, but I ran into some roadblocks. In my move, I forgot some of my books, and they won't be here for a bit. I'm also experimenting with how best to format the main content. In the meantime, here's a bonus episode on the tanks of Operation Barbarossa. We'll briefly go over early usages of the tank, and then cover German and Soviet tank development up to Barbarossa. We're also going to look at the major tanks that were in use by both sides at the time of the invasion. I hope you guys enjoy it. In many ways, the tank represented a combination of age-old ideas with modern technology. In fact, many credit Leonardo da Vinci with the first tank-like design. What we call the tank, and the role that the tank fills, is not a particularly complex idea. Soldiers are vulnerable. If they were in some sort of armored box, they will be protected. If that box could move and had weapons on it, well, you've got a war-winning idea. The only problem was, armor of heavy, and early designs could never quite solve the problem of how such a vehicle could move. With the invention of the internal combustion engine in the late 19th century, it seemed to many that the problem of movement had an answer. Many of the major world powers conducted experiments in heavily armored and sometimes armed tractors. These were to be used to traverse over uneven ground and obstacles, and so many of the designs were equipped with tracks instead of wheels. These early tests proved rather unpromising. Primitive engines were still underpowered and fragile, and frequently could not handle the strains put on them, especially when used off-road. This, coupled with a growing arms race among European powers, led these prototypes to be pushed to the side in favor of investment in more traditional weapons. But, as the Western Front of the First World War devolved into a bloody stalemate, the need for some solution, any solution, brought attention to what would become the tank. At this point, defensive weaponry had substantially improved in the last few decades, but offensive weaponry had not kept pace. On the Western Front, this meant that attacks largely consisted of sending waves of men to charge enemy trenches as artillery and machine guns cut soldiers down in the thousands. This was not sustainable, and both sides sought ways to end this. From 1914 on, both Britain and France developed armored fighting vehicles. Early designs showed potential, but suffered from serious mechanical issues. The British Mark I tank saw its first use in the Battle of the Somme in September of 1916, while the first French model saw action in April of 1917. These early models were large and clumsy things. The Mark I had a maximum speed of 6 kilometers per hour, it's only four miles per hour, but it was still a triumph of engineering. In the field, early uses showed a lot of promise. The armor made the vehicle impervious to enemy small arms, such as machine guns and rifles, while the machine guns and cannons that the tanks were armed with were deadly. In the early days, shock was also one of the primary weapons of tanks, terrifying soldiers who had never seen such a vehicle before. The word tank itself originated from the British program. Early designs were called landships, but this name was thought to be too obvious. To maintain secrecy, workers on the program were told that they were creating mobile water tanks for use in the Mesopotamian theater. Eventually, this was shortened to just tank, and the name stuck. The German and Russian experiences with tanks during World War I were far less extensive, and for the German part, almost strictly defensive. On the Western Front, like I said, Germany was on the defensive. It had little use for tanks, which were, and are, an offensive tool for the most part. There was an initial panic 
when British and French tanks were first confronted, but the weaknesses of these primitive machines allowed Germany to design countermeasures, which were generally effective and were also cheaper than developing tanks of their own. Germany did eventually design their own tank, the A7V, but only 20 were built and saw very little use, though Germany did utilize captured British and French tanks for their own needs. For its part, the Russian Empire lacked the technical know-how and industrial capacity to develop and produce workable tanks. There were some attempts at some sort of armored vehicle, but they were insufficient to arouse further interest. The Tsar tank is probably the most famous example. Created in 1915, it was wheeled, not tracked. It had two massive front wheels, each 9 meters or 30 feet in diameter, and a much smaller back wheel. In tests, it bogged down the mud in front of Russian generals and could not be pulled out. It remained there until it was scrapped in 1932. Following these initial usages, the UK and France expanded development and production of tanks, improving on early designs and creating different models of various sizes with different weapons and armor. The height of tank warfare in the Great War was to be the campaigns of 1919. Thought up by British theorist J.F.C. Fuller, these prospective offensives would have used thousands of tanks of different sorts in different roles to spearhead massive assaults, largely led by tanks, that were designed to destroy enemy supply, communications, and leadership. Thankfully, Plan 1919 never came to fruition. The armistice of November 11, 1918 made it unnecessary. However, the ideas put forward in Plan 1919 would set the stage for how tanks would be used in the wars to come, bearing an eerie resemblance to the campaigns of the Second World War. During the interwar period, both Nazi Germany and the USSR faced difficulties while attempting to develop armored forces. Tanks were prohibited in Germany by the Treaty of Versailles, while the USSR was under arms embargoes by most Western powers. To circumvent these restrictions, Germany and the USSR conducted covert and small-scale purchases, mainly through shell companies or subsidiaries. But the two nations also worked extensively together in a series of agreements. The first of these, the 1922 Treaty of Rapallo, saw Germany recognize the USSR in exchange for trade agreements. Secretly, the treaty also established joint training and development programs for military advancement. By 1929, a joint tank school had been created at Kazan, deep in the Soviet interior. Soviet officers would receive practical German military expertise, while Germany would get access to the equipment forbidden to them under Versailles. However, as the USSR gained more access to European and American resources and knowledge and this fervent anti-communism began to grow in Germany, relations between the two substantially cooled, and the school was shut down around 1933. Both Germany and the USSR had developed their own doctrines regarding the usage of tanks, although these doctrines were often hindered by the lack of equipment. German planners had conducted a study of the First World War to explain Germany's defeat. They conclude that Germany's fatal mistake was becoming bogged down in a two-front war against enemies with greater industry and manpower. Thus, any future war must be fought rapidly, overwhelming the enemy and winning a quick victory before the opponent could fully mobilize their superior resources. For this, large numbers of fast-moving tanks were essential, as well as tanks with enough firepower and armor to support the infantry and destroy enemy armor. But the role of tanks was still under debate. Older officers tended to see tanks as a gimmick, and that the infantry, cavalry, and artillery remained the fundamental units of war. These officers believed tanks should escort infantry, augment cavalry, and perform reconnaissance, but that they should not be used as an arm of war independent of the other three. 
On the other side, younger and more innovative types envision large groupings of tanks breaking through enemy lines and advancing deeply into the opponent's rear area, then followed by cavalry, infantry, and others. Two officers of the latter school, Heinz Guderian and Oswald Lutz, were able to convince Hitler of the promise the tanks held, and in 1935, the first Panzer tank divisions were formed. These new units would see service in the Spanish Civil War, although their small-scale deployment against poorly armed and organized forces said little about how they would fare against the major European powers in a large-scale war. Importantly, Guderian, who had been a signals officer, mandated that all tanks be equipped with a radio for coordination and communication. This would prove integral to Germany's early successes and the development of coherent doctrine. Prior to September 1939, all discussions of large-scale use of armor remained almost strictly theoretical. This changed with the German invasion of Poland, where German forces made use of 2,750 tanks. Polish forces were outmatched in firepower, manpower, and strategy and the theater proved a valuable environment to determine what was practical in using armor. That being said, the campaign was not conducted with armored forces first and foremost. Tank forces largely functioned to support and ease the work of the infantry in Poland, rather than leading assaults, as some of the more younger and upstart officers imagined. The Battle of France was where German armor came into its own. German forces moved rapidly through the Low Countries and then broke through a lightly defended point in the French defenses in the Ardennes region. Exploiting it, German panzer divisions raced through and managed to reach the English Channel, encircling a large part of British and French forces and equipment in northern France and Belgium. The capture of these allowed for the rest of France to be rapidly taken, concluding the Battle of France in a short six weeks. Even German planners were stunned by this, shocked that their armored forces had defeated an enemy that had brought their fathers to their knees 20 years prior. Incorporating these lessons, the doctrine of Blitzkrieg was created and more or less codified. In short, Blitzkrieg called for the concentration of armor, aircraft, artillery, and infantry against a small portion of the enemy defenses. Until this point, called the Schwerpunkt, or center of gravity, was broken, it would be the main focus of every action by the attacker. Once broken, quick-moving armored and motorized forces would rush through the gap and continue the advance, encircling large pockets of enemy forces caught by surprise. Slower-moving infantry would widen the breakthrough and eliminate, otherwise known as liquidate, pockets as faster units continued on to capture important objectives. It was thought that such an advance, conducted at a rapid tempo, would eventually destabilize enemy defenses until they had totally collapsed, at which point victory was assured. For this to work, however, large numbers of tanks were an absolute necessity, something that would plague German industry throughout the whole war. While Germany had considerable industrial capacity, much of it had been dismantled by the Treaty of Versailles to prohibit the development of advanced weaponry. Moreover, as we mentioned, Germany had very little experience in World War I developing tanks, so compared to the British or the French, it was at a disadvantage. Rearmament, also forbidden by Versailles, was not begun in earnest until Hitler seized control of Germany in 1933. With tank development taking unsure steps at the same time as production, German factories found themselves building many different models, often having to sacrifice efficiency and time to transfer production to, to newer designs. The first German tank that saw mass production was the Panzer I. Like many other tanks designed in the early 1930s, the Panzer I was based on the British Carden Lloyd, 
a small armored vehicle that saw large-scale export in the interwar era. Designed as a training tank, the Panzer I was lightly armed and armored with only 13mm steel plating and equipped with two 7.92mm machine guns. As such, the Panzer I was technically a tankette, not a tank, a tankette being an armored vehicle without a large cannon. Although not created with combat in mind, the Panzer I was pushed into service during the invasions of Poland and France, making it 40% of the German armored forces in the former and 20% in the latter. Vulnerable to any and all anti-tank weapons and unable to confront enemy armor head-on, it was only through shrewd communication, made possible through universal radios and tanks, and coordination that Panzer I were used successfully in the campaigns of 1939 and 1940. Despite this, it had been phased out of combat service by Barbarossa, but several hundred participated as command vehicles, mine clearers, and security forces. Developed shortly after the Panzer I, the Panzer II was designed for combat, if only as a stopgap until better tank could be made in larger numbers. It was more heavily armored than the Panzer I. The version used in Barbarossa had up to 35mm of armor, and it had a 2cm cannon in addition to machine guns, which gave it limited anti-tank capability. It played a prominent role in the Nazi invasions of Poland and France, making up roughly a third of German tanks in both. While more advanced models would replace it, around 750 were involved in the invasion of the USSR. The Panzer III was the first model intended for long-term service. German designers envisioned the Panzer III as being used to destroy enemy armor, and for this, it was armed with an anti-tank gun with armor-piercing capability. Early models received a 3.7cm or 37mm version, while later variants used a 5cm gun. This was far more capable against armor than the 2cm cannon, but the Panzer III was not significantly better in armor than the Panzer II, and the Panzer III that began Barbarossa only had 30mm of frontal armor. About 1,000 were available for the Soviet campaign. In addition to the base Panzer III, roughly 250 Sturmgeschütz III were available. Created on the chassis of the Panzer III, the turret was removed and replaced with a stationary 75mm gun. This modification allowed for a more powerful gun, save weight, and was significantly cheaper than a traditional tank. The Panzer IV was arguably the height of German armor technology by 1941. Designed to support infantry attacks against enemy infantry and artillery, it was equipped with a 75mm gun and as much as 50mm of armor. Unfortunately for German tankers, it was in short supply by June 22, 1941. Only 440 or so were available for use in Barbarossa. Rounding out the German tank forces were the Panzer 35 and 38Ts. Originally Czechoslovakian designs, existing models were seized by the German army during the annexation of Czechoslovakia, and Germany had production of the 38T continued. Both were armed with 37mm guns, but only had 25mm of frontal armor. These tanks were outdated by the time of Operation Barbarossa, liable to be destroyed by nearly any Soviet tank and unable to pierce most Soviet armor outside close ranges. However, German tankers had proved skilled at coordinating and maneuvering, concentrating tanks were desirable, and avoiding enemy armor were beneficial. These two models, the 35 and 38T, made up about a quarter of Operation Barbarossa's tank forces, with 160 35Ts and 650 38Ts used, respectively. Notably absent from the German tank forces was anything that could be called a heavy tank, a vehicle capable of resisting enemy tank and anti-tank fire and destroying enemy armor easily. This was the product of both economic and doctrinal factors. 
German factories had difficulty filling orders of light and medium tanks, let alone significantly larger models. Moreover, Blitzkrieg had little need for heavy tanks. Success was viewed as dependent on speed and coronation, something more unwieldy heavy tanks were ill-suited for. German experiences against British and French armor in the Battle of France had also convinced some commanders that breaking through enemy lines, traditionally a job for tanks, heavy tanks, was better done by combined arms attacks. German panzer forces at the time were arranged in the four Panzergruppe, assigned to the three army groups that would conduct Operation Barbarossa. Each Panzergruppe was made of a mixture of panzer divisions and motorized infantry. Army Group North and South were each granted one Panzergruppe, while Army Group Center, who held priority, was given two. Overall, 17 panzer divisions would be leveled against the USSR, three in the north, nine in the center, and five in the south. Nazi Germany had managed to assemble an impressive armored force for the invasion of the USSR. Over 3,000 tanks would take part. But in doing so, they opened themselves up to a number of problems. German tanks were designed to operate in temporal central and western European weather, and it was unknown exactly how severely the poor roads and harsh weather of the USSR would affect these delicate machines, although it certainly wouldn't help. The weight of tanks put pressure on their internals, and the treads that tanks move on tend to be delicate. Smooth roads were rarely available in battle, and tanks often broke down climbing hills, moving through mud, or in extreme hot or cold. Parts were largely not interchangeable between models, making repair difficult. Even if spares existed, transporting them, or any supplies for that matter, would prove a challenge deep in the Soviet interior, something that many German officers did point out. Indeed, logistics would at times prove a significantly greater obstacle to a German advance than Soviet resistance. Regarding fuel, the lifeblood of any mechanized force, Germany was desperately short of it throughout the war, as well as the transport needed to keep its trucks and tanks in motion. At the time of Operation Barbarossa, the basic unit of fuel for a panzer division was considered enough to move the division 100 kilometers on good roads. This would consume 92 tons, or 83.7 metric tons, of fuel. In the USSR, however, modern roads were severely lacking, largely only available between major cities. And this basic unit would only move a panzer division 50 kilometers on your standard Soviet road. Panzer divisions were capable of carrying at 55 tons, about 50 metric tons, of fuel with them, assuming they had a full complement of transport vehicles. But this was only sufficient to move 30 kilometers, meaning that a good day's advance would completely exhaust the panzer division, immobilizing it until supply companies could catch up. Nor did supply companies offer a full solution. Most German logistics were horse-drawn, making them unsuitable for resupplying motorized and panzer forces moved at vastly faster rates. Motorized supply companies existed, but they themselves used fuel, and German fuel production was insufficient, split between motorized infantry and logistics forces, and generally insufficient for their needs. This was temporarily remedied by using Polish, French, and British vehicles that were captured in earlier campaigns, but almost no spare parts were available for these vehicles, so many had to be abandoned at the slightest breakdown. Not to mention, motorized supply companies suffered from the same poor roads and weather conditions that panzer divisions did. Finally, Germany could only guarantee two months of fuel to panzer forces, putting a definite ticking clock on operations. Anything past that will lead to essential tank forces engaging in start-stop operations as fuel became available and as it lapsed, inching forward and having to wait for vital supplies to continue. In spite of all these concerns, many of which were voiced by higher-ranked officers, 
Barbarossa was to go ahead. These officers who voiced concerns were in the minority and often part of the logistics department, which was generally under-considered and not considered very important by higher staff. Encouraged by 12 years of Nazi propaganda that trumpeted the superiority of the German race and degraded Jews and Slavs as subhuman, it was truly believed by many, including the top brass, that the USSR would quickly fall. The belief was, according to Hitler himself, that Germany only had the kick in the door and the whole Rhine structure would come crashing down. Indeed, many thought that German forces would be met with adulation from citizens of the USSR, eager to overthrow their supposed Jewish Bolshevik overlords. Whatever one thought, the wheels of war were irrevocably in motion. Soviet experience with tanks dated back to the Russian Civil War. While the newly formed Red Army had no tanks of its own, anti-communist white Russian forces, as well as Western expeditionary forces, were equipped with World War I surplus tanks, donated or sold by the U.S., France, and the U.K. Many of these were captured by the Red Army and were analyzed to create replicas. These replicas would become some of the USSR's first domestically produced tanks. However, they would see severely limited production, primarily due to an anemic Soviet heavy industry, a holdover from Imperial Russia, and a situation that was only made worse by the Russian Civil War. Throughout the 1920s and 1930s, high-level Soviet theorists such as Mikhail Tukhachevsky and Vladimir Chindafarov formulated a new military doctrine named Deep Battle. Inspired by the work of J.F.C. Fuller, who predicted that warfare would come to be fully mechanized, and if you remember, also formulated Plan 1919, Deep battle would involve successive or parallel multi-front attacks on enemy positions. These attacks would disrupt enemy defenses and confuse enemy intelligence. From there, further offensives would tear holes in the enemy lines and self-sufficient units would conduct deep advances above the 200 kilometers. It was expected that the units responsible for breakthroughs and exploitations of this kind would be primarily tanks and mobile infantry. For a time, the spirit of mass mechanization and technological warfare was accepted as an official doctrine. And with the large-scale industrialization of the USSR through Stalin's first five-year plan, mass tank manufacturing could begin apace. As early as 1932, this production was sufficient to create two dedicated mechanized corps, each made of two tank divisions and one mechanized infantry division, and still provide independent tank support to infantry formations. All these developments occurred three years before the first German panzer divisions were created. But Tukhachevsky's dreams of an army 50,000 tanks strong would not come to pass in his lifetime, and his beloved Deep Battle would find itself out of favor with the powers that be. Deep Battle, in the broader acceptance of tanks as an independent force in the USSR, was hampered on a few fronts. Cavalry officers, many of whom were highly influential, largely opposed the use of independent mechanized groups. Historically, cavalry had been vital to cover the vast territory of the Eurasian steppe, and cavalry officers were often idolized. Chief among them was Semyon Budini. A hero of the Russian Civil War, his love for horse cavalry, coupled with his influence over Stalin, proved a severe thorn in the side of tank advocates. As late as 1939, he was known to declare that, quote, as soon as war is declared, everyone will shout, send for the cavalry. More damaging to armored development was the Great Purge. In 1936, an increasingly paranoid Stalin became convinced that internal threats were attempting to usurp his power. Specifically, he saw the military as a likely point of resistance, and decided to decapitate the command structure to preempt the threat. By the time the purges were over, three of five marshals, 13 of 15 army commanders, and 50 of 57 corps commanders had been dismissed, imprisoned, or shot. 
similar numbers of other high commanders met his fate. In essence, Stalin had torn, torn the brain. No. Stalin had torn the brain from the Red Army. The purges targeted the newest and most innovative sectors of the military, following heavily on tank officers. In June of 1937, Tukhachevsky himself met the same fate as thousands of others, shot in the back of the head after a sham trial. It is worth noting that of the eight officers that condemned Tukhachevsky, five would themselves die in the purges. Budyoni, one of the three who survived the purge, claimed at Tukhachevsky's trial that his dream of a tank-based force was so inferior to horse cavalry that it amounted to deliberate sabotage. Tukhachevsky, now living his worst nightmare, could only murmur to himself, I feel I'm dreaming. The impact of the purges went beyond the elimination or murder of important figures. Deep battle was abandoned as official doctrine, and officers, who were now supervised by political commissars with the power to reverse their orders, were afraid to deviate from the tactics that had sufficed during the Russian Civil War, for fear the errors would become charges of sabotage and wrecking. Mechanized corps were dissolved in late 1939, although revived and actually expanded after German tank victories in France in the summer of 1940. While 29 mechanized corps technically existed at the outset of Barbarossa, they were undermanned and undersupplied, and many were led by officers promoted far above their capacity. Despite rapid shifts in doctrine and the dangerous political climate, large-scale Soviet production led to the USSR having by far the world's largest tank force in summer of 1941. The Red Army likely had over 23,000 tanks, but many of these existed only on paper. Roughly 20% were in need of serious repair, and tank forces were spread across the bastions of the USSR. Roughly 10,700 tanks were stationed in the western border districts, of which about 9,000 were usable. Soviet tank crews were largely untrained or undertrained, and the T-27 tankette, used to train tankers, bore more resemblance to a car with a machine gun than a proper tank. Nor were all mechanized corps equal, suffering tremendous disparities in armor strength. Most corps numbered between 400 and 700 tanks on hand, but the 6th Mechanized Corps had over 1,000, while the 17th was practically non-existent with only 36 tanks. Similar to German tanks, Soviet armor was a collection of models, many obsolete or out of production. Most of the Soviet tank forces were made up of the light T-26 and BT model tanks. For its part, the T-26 was an unremarkable vehicle. Designed around 1930, it was a modification of the British Vickers six-ton tank, which was extensively exported during the interwar years. It boasted about 15mm of armor and a 45mm gun. This was serviceable in the early to mid-1930s, but by 1941, the 15cm of armor was proving insufficient against the enemy with anti-tank guns or armor of their own. The BT tanks were a more modern take on the light tank. They had similar weapons to the T-26, although somewhat thicker armor. Notably, they were designed for speed. The name itself translates to fast tank. On roads, the BT could zip along at at least 62 kilometers per hour, 40 miles per hour, and off-road speeds were only slightly lower at 50 kilometers per hour, about 32 miles an hour. Designed by American race car driver J. Walter Christie, BT tanks were also equipped with a steering wheel and could take off their tracks for maximum road speed and maneuverability but the pride of Soviet armor were the new T-34 and KV series tanks. The T-34 was envisioned as a replacement to the T-26 and BT tanks, and began design in 1937. Early prototypes were something of an improvement, but were still plagued with many of the same problems. 
The 20 millimeters of armor was too easily pierced by anti-tank guns, and the 45 millimeter gun was judged insufficient. The designer, Mikhail Koshkin, convinced Stalin to invest in upgrades, arming the vehicle with 50 millimeters of armor and a 76.2 millimeter gun. This upgraded model was envisioned as a universal tank, a vehicle capable of performing the role of light and heavy tanks. The T-34 was also notable for its rugged nature, sloped armor, and diesel engine. It was fairly easy to repair and could run even under tough conditions. To demonstrate this to high command, the design team drove a T-34 over 2,000 kilometers, or 1,200 miles, almost without stop. Sloped armor, the practice of slanting the metal plates to increase the effective thickness, was not unique to the T-34, but it did save steel and weight, reducing the cost of production and easing the strain on the engine. Albeit, this created a cramped and uncomfortable experience for the crew. Finally, a diesel engine provided more power than a traditional gasoline engine, aiding the T-34 in traversing obstacles and in general performance. What all this came to was a vehicle that was extremely difficult for German tanks and anti-tank guns to penetrate and could pierce the armor of German tanks with ease. For its capabilities, it was relatively cheap and ripe for mass production. On the other hand, Tank performance was impaired by the cramped interior, and the vehicle suffered those heating problems typical of newer designs. Nor was the T-34 being produced in anything approaching sufficient numbers. The T-34 went into mass production in 1940, but only around 130 were produced in that year. Numbers ramped up in 1941, but only around 1,100 had been created when the Germans invaded, of which 900 were stationed in the western border regions. The T-34's bigger brother, the KV-series tanks, would prove a source of utter terror to advancing Germans. The KV-series tanks were classified as heavy tanks, meant to break through enemy strong points and absorb shots from other tanks and anti-tank guns. Earlier Soviet heavy tanks had been failures, played by insufficient armor or an underpowered engine. Named for Soviet Defense Commissar Klement Voroshilov, the KV-1 saw success against Finnish positions in the Winter War. Its thick armor proved invulnerable to existing tanks and anti-tank guns, and with a 76.2mm gun, the same one on the T-34, it could destroy anything put in front of it. A small number of KV-2 tanks were built in response to especially strong Spanish defenses. Similar to the KV-1, they were equipped with a massive 152mm howitzer capable of leveling fortified positions. In border districts, only 440 of these behemoths were available, but would often hold up German forces for extended periods when they were encountered. Unfortunately, KV tanks lacked spare parts and trained crews, and suffered from frequent breakdowns. T-34 suffered from similar problems, although perhaps to a lesser extent. Soviet forces were arranged in a series of fronts. The Northern Front was equipped with the 1st Tank Division and two Mechanized Corps, as was the Northwest Front. And the Western Front had six Mechanized Corps. The Southwest Front could call on eight mechanized corps. Finally, the Southern Front possessed two. Four corps were held in reserve with reinforcements. Due to incorrect predictions that a German attack would come against Ukraine, Red Army strength in the Southern Front was extensive, to the detriment of defenses in the center, the true focus of the German attack. Similar to the Germans, Soviet armor suffered from severe logistical issues pre-war and during the early war. Although German issues were more about long-term prospects, while Soviet issues were more about short-term prospects. Soviet forces had been arranged in peacetime positions, although they were on a state of readiness prior to the German invasion, as to give Germany no provocation. As such, they were also functional without proper supplies to engage in sustained combat, 
little ammunition was on hand, especially for the newer KV and T-34 tanks, who often had little more than a single load of ammunition. Although Soviet production and resources were sufficient to ensure supplies when properly organized, the incompetence and chaos of the last few years had rendered supply lines slow and inefficient, largely negating the numerical and technical advantages Soviet armor had. As a final note, there were three main dangers to the tanks. Other tanks, breakdowns, and other forms of self-inflicted damage, and anti-tank weaponry. We've looked at the first two, so let's quickly look at the third. Anti-tank weapons at the time could be broken up into two categories. Specialized anti-tank artillery that fired shells designed to pierce armor, and anti-tank rifles designed to be used by individuals. Oh note that all the tests were conducted against the front of the tank, which is usually the thickest part of the tank's armor. For the USSR, most of its anti-tank artillery was capable of piercing German tanks at normal ranges, barring the Panzer IV at some longer ranges. The standard Soviet anti-tank rifle, the PTRD-41, had a limited range, but from that range it could pierce anything but the Panzer IV. Unfortunately for the Soviets, many divisions lacked ammunition for their anti-tank weaponry and were broadly undersupplied with the weapons themselves. For the Germans, they had a litany of anti-tank artillery both captured and domestically produced. Most of them were capable of penetrating the T-26 and BT tanks, but would simply bounce off the front of the T-34 and KB tanks. Interestingly, the German 8.8cm anti-aircraft cannon was by far the most powerful anti-tank weapon the Germans had, although it was not designed for it. German anti-tank rifles had poor range, but were capable of cracking the armor of T-26 tanks, although this is more of an afterthought as the Germans didn't extensively use anti-tank rifles the same way the Soviets did. In brief, Soviet tank forces could be described as powerful and numerous, but unwieldy and poorly led. They had great potential, but were at least a year from realizing it. On the other hand, German tank divisions were much better led and had much better supply in the short term, although their prospects for long-term supply and logistics were highly uncertain question would be, could the USSR hold out long enough to survive? Thanks for listening. My name's Harry. I'm sorry about the delay in my episodes. Hopefully I'll get those started. If I can't, by next week, I'm going to try and release another episode like this, probably on the aircraft and the air doctrine. But until then, wish me luck on getting this done. If you have any comments, complaints, or questions about the process, ideas, whatever you want to talk to me about, you can email me at apocalypseintheeast at gmail.com. That's apocalypseintheeast at gmail.com. Again, until then, have a good week, and I'll see you later.